It is good to see everybody tonight. Uh, I hope between last week and this week, you got to read the, uh, the chi- Chicago Statement on inerrancy. We will talk about that briefly a little bit later. Uh, what I want to do is start again tonight with a video that's approximately 24 minutes long. And uh, I would love for you to hear some of Wayne Gruden's. Uh, trouble is, his lectures are about... Most of them are about 58 minutes to about an hour and 10 minutes long. So what I have tonight, you're used to that. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, uh, this, this format will cover the same thing, but in a little shorter time frame. So uh, let's get started with this because I want to make sure that I have time to go through some of the handout material with you. What we're going to look at tonight is the, the doctrine of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, when you hear inerrancy, some people think errant, mistakes. No, inerrancy means it's without mistake, okay? The inerrancy and infallibility of the Scripture. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And hopefully, if I get through that, we will, we will go into issues related uh, to the canon of Scripture. At least maybe through the Old Testament canon if we don't get to the New Testament canon. Guys along the back, because of the noise that comes through the lobby while we're meeting in here, if uh, you guys along the back would always get those doors when we're in uh, service here, I certainly would appreciate it. Any discussion of the nature of sacred scripture that includes the concern about its inspiration has to tackle, in our day and age at least, the issues of the infallibility and the inerrancy of scriptures. We know that uh, throughout church history, the classic and traditional view of the Bible is that having come by way of divine inspiration, the Bible has been recognized by the church in all ages as being infallible and inerrant. But with the rise of higher criticism, particularly in the 19th and 20th centuries, not only has the inspiration of Scripture come under widespread attack, but specifically these concepts of infallibility and inerrancy have been uh, sharply criticized. One of the complaints is that the doctrine of inerrancy is alleged to have been the creation of 17th century Protestant orthodoxy, which is sometimes called the age of Protestant scholasticism, corresponding to the secular uh, philosophical histories era of the age of reason. And that is that the idea of inerrancy has been a rational construct that was foreign not only to the biblical writers themselves, but even to the magisterial reformers of the 16th century. Critics of inerrancy are quick to point out that Luther never used the term inerrancy. And that's true. All that Luther said was that the scriptures never err. Now, I don't know what the difference would be between the concept of inerrancy and the concept of something's never erring, 
could be. But certainly the idea was held in common by the magisterial reformers, and it was also not an innovation for them in the 16th century. As we go back to uh, Tertullian, to Irenaeus, and particularly to St. Augustine, and we will see these concepts uh, plainly declared by them. But more to the point is, what is the Bible's view of itself? Now, we recognize that there are other books on this planet, like the Book of Mormon and the Koran and other sacred literature of other world religions that claim to come about by way of divine origin and divine inspiration. And the Bible also makes that claim. Now, I am not one who believes that that claim is true simply because the Bible makes it. Uh, because if something is true just because the claim is made, then we would have to grant equal, equal truth to the Book of Mormon and these other books. Uh, but the argument goes like this, since this really is the Word of God, and the Word of God claims to be the Word of God, and if it really is the Word of God, its claim must be so. So in this case, uh, uh, it is the Word of God. Well, I believe it is the Word of God, and I believe that it is God who's making the claim that it is the Word of God, and I don't think there's any higher authority than God Himself. But they, again, the question is, how do I recognize that Word from uh, other claims in other places? But that's another question. It is significant, however, to the church that the Bible does claim to come to us by divine inspiration, because if it doesn't, then that source that we have for the most important truths of our law is given an exaggerated claim to its own integrity and its own authority. And that would have very serious consequences and repercussions. Now, again, the church historically has seen that the Bible, of all the written literature in history, is alone uniquely infallible. And the word infallible may be defined as that which cannot fail, is indefectible, it is incapable of making a mistake. And linguistically, the term infallible is a higher term than the term uh, inerrancy for this reason. I could write an inerrant grocery list without any claim to divine inspiration. I've taken tests as a student in elementary school, spelling tests, where we had 20 questions, and I got all of them right, and I got 100%. My test was inerrant. I didn't require the inspiration of the Holy Ghost to do that. And, of course, to be inerrant for a small period of time and in a very restricted arena did not make me infallible as subsequent spelling tests would verify because I was capable of making mistakes. Now, I say that uh, for a reason because so much of the controversy today involves a certain amount of confusion about both of these terms. And let's look at some of these problems. One large Christian body in its historic confession makes the claim that the Bible is the only infallible 
rule of faith and practice. Now, I have seen those who have jettisoned this concept replace it with another statement that sounds so much similar to this, and that statement goes like this, that the Bible is only infallible when it speaks of faith and practice. Those sound alike, don't they? But they're as different as night is from day. Let's look at the first one. When this statement says that the Bible is the only infallible rule, the term only restricts the Bible out of all possible other rules and said of all books, of all norms, of all authorities, there is only one that is infallible in its authoritative ruling capacity, and that is the Bible. And it is in an infallible rule of what? Of faith and practice. Now, it refers here to the faith and the practice of Christians. Now, in that regard, this would say that the rule, that Scripture is the rule of our faith, which has to do with all that we believe, and it is the rule for our practice, which has to do with all that we do. Now, notice how these words change their orientation when we get to this next statement. Now we say that the Bible is only infallible. When? So this now is not restricting the Bible from other sources or other rules, but now the word only is restricting a portion of the Bible itself and saying that there is a limited infallibility of the Bible. Not that the Bible is the only infallible rule in all that it says, but in this case, only part of the Bible is infallible. And that is what we call limited inerrancy, which has become very popular in our day. It's only infallible when it speaks of faith and practice. Now, do you realize that up here, the two terms, faith and practice, are words to capture the whole of the Christian life. What else is there besides what we believe and what we do to be ruled about? But here, now, faith and practice refers to a portion of the teaching of Scripture, which may be distinguished from what the Bible says about history, what it says about world science, and what it says about uh, cultural matters, and so on. In other words, now the Bible is restricted in its authority only when it speaks of religious matters of faith. But anything else it talks about may fail, such as matters of history. Maybe the Bible is incorrect when it tells us about what actually took place in the ancient world. So you have to be careful with the way in which these terms are used in theological statements. Now, 
In the final analysis, the question of the authority of the Bible rests for the church on the question of the authority of Christ. Several years ago, in fact, in the early 70s, Ligonier Ministries sponsored and hosted a conference on the authority of Scripture in Pennsylvania. A book was published out of that conference called God's Inerrant Word, edited by John Warwick Montgomery, the Lutheran scholar. And we had scholars from around the world come together into a symposium to discuss the question of the inerrancy of the Bible. And without previous collusion, every single scholar that was there came to the question of the authority of the Bible Christologically. That is, they came with this question in mind. What was Jesus' view of Scripture? Because it was the desire of these scholars to hold a view of the Bible that was no more and by no means no less than the view of Scripture taught by Jesus himself. Now, I immediately feel the weight of the problem, because the only way we know of Jesus' view of the Bible is by reading the Bible. And so we could get ourselves locked here in a vicious circular argument, saying that Jesus taught this in the Bible, and yet we only know about what Jesus said by virtue of the Bible. But if we go back and take this a step at a time, those who are critics of the infallibility of Scripture and the biblical scholars who are fond of of attacking particular passages in the Bible and say, oh, these were later redactions that would come after the death of the apostle or so on, and they don't get us in touch with the authentic teachings of, the, of Jesus or of the apostles. Of that group of skeptics and critics, there is widespread agreement that those portions of Scripture that are least in dispute with respect and with regard to their historical authenticity are those portions of Scripture that happen to contain Jesus' statements about the Scripture. There is really not a serious dispute in the theological world about what view Jesus held of the Bible. I would cite people like Bart, Bruner, Paul Althaus, even, even uh, Rudolf Bultmann, Jehoiakim uh, Jeremias, uh, C.H. Dodd, to name but a few of the reputable scholars and higher critical scholars of the 20th century who agree to a man that the historic human Jesus of Nazareth believed and taught the very high exalted view of Scripture that was common to first century Judaism, namely that the Bible was nothing less than the inspired Word of God, that Jesus made such comments as this, Thy word is truth. The Scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away until all has been fulfilled. And there is, as I've mentioned before, the way Jesus treated the Scriptures of the Old Testament 
where he would rest his, his case on the turn of a single word and would simply say it is written to settle a theological dispute. So what I'm saying is there are few, very few, if any, uh, uh, scholars who would challenge the view that Jesus of Nazareth taught what the church for 2,000 years has been teaching. But at the same time, these scholars who make that admission turn around and say that Jesus was wrong in his view of Scripture. Now, when you hear that at first blush, you wonder about the arrogance of such a statement from a Christian theologian to say, well, I have a view of Scripture which is the correct one, and I'm going to have to correct Jesus in his teaching to the church about the nature of Scripture. But they hasten to add that not only was Jesus wrong about his view of Scripture, but it's okay that he was wrong because he was influenced by the prevailing view of the primitive pre-scientific Jewish community of his age And in his human nature, he had no possible way of knowing that the current view of Scripture that was popular in his day was erroneous. And they are also quick to point out that if you argue that Jesus was omniscient in his human nature and that he knew everything that that would be a Christological heresy because the Christology of the church historically teaches that omniscience belongs to the divine nature and not to the human nature. And touching his human nature, there were things manifestly that Jesus did not know. When pressed about the day and the hour of his return, for example, he says to his disciples that that, that this day has not been revealed and that the angels don't know it and even the Son doesn't know it, but only the Father knows it. So Jesus himself gave a limit to his own knowledge. And so that he gave us a false view of Scripture is excusable because he had no way of knowing. In response to that, Orthodox scholars would say, wait a minute, It's not necessary for Jesus to be omniscient to be our Redeemer. And we grant that touching his human nature, he did not have the attribute of omniscience. Obviously, the divine nature did, but the human nature didn't. But the broader issue, the deeper issue here, is the sinlessness of Christ. Because if Christ committed one sin... He would be disqualified as our Savior. He couldn't make an atonement for his own sin, let alone for ours. And so then the question becomes, would it be sinful for a teacher who claims to teach nothing except that which he has received from God to teach an error? Would it be a sin for a person, a prophet, for example, to come on the scene and say, I say nothing of my own authority, but only on that which is based on the authority of my Father who sent me, and then teach error? 
What would you think of a professor who walked into the classroom and said, today, I'm not just going to proclaim for you the truth, but I am the truth. And then you caught me in a blatant error. The scriptures have an ethic about teaching that we ought not have many become teachers, for with teaching comes the greater judgment. Now, I have a moral responsibility as a teacher not to bluff or to lie to my students. If my students ask me a question, and I don't know the answer to that question, I am obliged to say I don't know the answer to that question. Or if my thinking is tentative on a matter, I should say to them, look, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I'm leaning in this direction. Because the teacher has so much power of influencing the thinking of those who are studying at his feet. And nobody had greater influence and authority as a teacher in all of human history than Jesus of Nazareth. And if he's telling people that Moses wrote of him and that Abraham rejoiced to see his day and the word cannot be broken and the scripture is true and he's wrong, he's culpable for that. Because he doesn't have to be omniscient to be responsible to put a limit to his own certainty where that limit actually falls. And so I would say that if Jesus were wrong about the teaching that he gives to us about such a crucial matter as the authority of the, the Bible itself, that I can't imagine anybody taking him seriously about everything else he taught. Now, by Jesus' own pedagogy, he rebuked the Pharisees for straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel and said, if you cannot believe me concerning earthly things, how can you believe me concerning heavenly things? And yet we now have a whole generation of theologians who say Jesus was wrong about earthly things, the matter of the transmission of the Old Testament and so on, but he's still eminently trustworthy with respect to heavenly things. We have a whole generation of theologians who have strained out the gnat and swallowed one gnat of a camel by attacking the accuracy and trustworthiness of the very Lord of the church. We say that the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice because we believe that it is the rule that has been delegated by the only Lord of the church whose rule it is. And when we have a generation of Christians say, I believe in the authority of Jesus, but not in the authority of Jesus with respect to the authority of the Bible, that's where I get off the boat. So I think it's significant that we start not in a circle assuming the authority of the Bible, but if the Bible teaches us, for example, that Jesus was a good man even, or if the Bible can give us enough just basic reliable historical information that we can say it's basically reliable, reliable enough to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a prophet, and then we learn that this Jesus, whom we've met by reliable information, tells us that that source of information that we've only deemed to be basically reliable up to this point tells us that it's more than basically reliable, then we have moved not in a circle but progressively from a basic starting point of uh, historical openness to criticism 
to historical reliability, to historical knowledge of the teaching of Jesus, to the teaching of Jesus who tells us that that source is not just basically reliable, but absolutely reliable because it is nothing less than the Word of God. And if the Word of God, it cannot fail, if it cannot err, it does not err. Now, the Council on Biblical Inerrancy has done much to study the, the nuances of the meaning of that term inerrancy. We have a booklet at Ligonier where I give a, a commentary on the Articles of Affirmation and Denial from the Chicago Summit several years ago explaining in detail the doctrine of inerrancy, and you can get that by contacting Ligonier. But for now, I'm going to just simply say that uh, inerrancy is the lesser term and it follows resistlessly from the concept of infallibility. If something cannot err, then manifestly it does not err. And it does not err with respect to truth. All the Bible has to be to pass the test of criticism is absolutely consistent with its own claims, with the claims of Jesus, and that means with respect to the New Testament concept of truth, aletheia. And if we define truth the way the New Testament does, then I think there is no reason under the sun for people to dispute the utter inerrancy of the Bible. Okay. Uh, Question, if, uh, who has the ESV study Bible? Who in here? Okay. Let me encourage you to look in the back of that, uh, the articles in the back. There is a section on theology. It is brief. Uh, in a study Bible, it pretty well has to be brief. But I would encourage you to... Uh, Read that. Let's see if I can... Beginning on page 2507. 2507. You're going to see the, the uh, topic beginning there. The Bible and Revelation. And it's going to talk about general revelation and special revelation. I would encourage you uh, to read that if you, if you have the ESV study Bible, okay? Now, as we jump into tonight, I had asked you last week, well, first of all, let's go over last week a moment because last week we started talking about Revelation and we broke it down into general revelation and special revelation. General revelation and special revelation. You remember that? Okay. Now, never fear, a lot of what I talk about tonight, I'm going to give you a handout to take home. Okay? So if you don't get something, if you're writing feverishly and can't keep up, don't worry. Okay? But uh, general, gen, general revelation and special revelation. What did, what did we say about general revelation? Does anybody remember? Okay, nature, history, conscience, right? 
General Revelation, Psalm 19, for instance, says what? The heavens declare the glory of God. Plus, read Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Because Paul talks about there how in creation God has revealed enough of his divine attributes to render man what? Without excuse. And we said last week that general revelation in and of itself cannot save. It is enough to condemn but not enough to save. Right? That's what scripture says. Romans 1 talks about general revelation and how God has revealed himself in the heavens and in nature to render men without excuse. General revelation should tell just by looking at the heavens. General revelation should tell us there's a God who made all of this. Now, in order to find out who he is and what he's done, we need special revelation. And special revelation, in particular, I said is what? The written word and the living word, the Lord Jesus, right? We indicated, we said, because we are finite and God is infinite, If man is to know God, God must take the initiative in revealing himself. And I said general revelation, also sometimes called natural revelation, uh, is general in two ways. First, it is general in that it is to all men. Because all men can go outside and look at the heavens, right? God has revealed himself to all persons at all times. And then also we said it is general because it only reveals a general amount of information. A limited amount of information. Right? Again, I I want to just reiterate what I said last week. While general revelation is sufficient to condemn... It is not sufficient to save. Uh, Somebody asked the question last week, and it was asked again after class. How about the pagan who's never heard the Christian gospel? My understanding of the scripture is he's condemned. Because had he been responsible for the amount of light that he was giving, given, God would have given him more. And we see that in the New Testament. With the, the case of the Ethiopian eunuch and with Cornelius. They were responsible for the amount of light they had. God gave them more. God ended up giving them a Christian witness. So the fact that a pagan dies without ever hearing the gospel is evidence, I I think the Bible would tell us, is evidence he did not even respond to the amount of light he was given. 
And so he's condemned. Now, as, as I said, beyond that, you know, God is, God is a just God. You know, God's a ju- God is not going to uh, condemn anybody who's saved or save someone who's legitimately condemned. God is a holy and a just God. Usually, and, and usually when somebody comes up to you and says, well, what about the pagan? You know, they're just, they're throwing up excuses, aren't they? They're just wanting to, to do battle with you and make excuses. So, well, you know what? You know, we can know God's going to do the right thing with the pagan. Again, I, I think the scripture would teach us if he, if he died without becoming a Christian, without getting a Christian witness, his testimony, he was not even responsible to the amount of light he had. He stands condemned on the basis of general revelation. Paul says so in, in Romans chapter 1. But, but again, you can say to the pagan or, or to the person who's bringing up to you the pagan, you know the pagan's not really the issue right now, is he? What about you? Because you have heard. Uh, we, uh, we talked about the perspicuity of general revelation, meaning the clarity of it. It's, Paul, Paul says in Romans 1.20 that God is clearly perceived. Nobody can ever stand before God and say, God, I, I'm sorry, but I had no idea that you were there. They can't say that. We also talked last week about we need to understand the relationship between general revelation and special revelation. The two are in perfect agreement. They don't teach a different God. They teach the same God. Well, I guess enough of that. Unless you have a question about last week on general revelation. No? Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's a great text. Paul preaching there on Mars Hill before the Areopagus, which was both a, a place, a place where they handed down decisions, and it was the name given to the council, uh, the council who sat there in that place and would hand down decisions. Uh, the, the clarity of Scripture. Write down the clarity of Scripture. What's the, what's the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture refer to? God has made it plain enough 
that for the student of the Word of God who, who, read, who prayerfully reads the Scripture, God's not playing hide-and-seek. Through prayerful reading and study of the Scripture, God has made it to where we can understand what He's trying to say to us. Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. That was one of, one of the things in the, in the Protestant Reformation. The sufficiency of Scripture. What's the sufficiency of Scripture teaching us? Scripture's all we need. Scripture's all we essentially need to, to understand the message of salvation and the message of growing in the Christian life. God has maybe not told us everything we would want to know about every single subject, but God has told us what we need to know in order to know Him and grow in our relationship with Him. And then, of course, Jesus' view of Scripture. You can read through the Gospels and... uh, Jesus, without fail, without fail in the four Gospels, when Jesus commented on the Scripture, he indicated it's it's God's Word and it's trustworthy. Without fail. Not a single exception to that. Now, uh, the, the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, I hope you had a chance to read the whole thing. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you can Google the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy and, and it'll pop up there. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. I mentioned last week that we would just look at, at the short statement. Uh, by the way, uh, a blue ribbon committee of biblical scholars got together when they wrote this. Why did they get together? It was in 78. Why did they get together? What were they seeing in the church? Yes. They, they were seeing an erosion. An erosion of confidence in the inerrancy of Scripture. And attacks on the Scripture. And so statement one, number one. God who is himself truth and speaks truth only. Has inspired Holy Scripture. In, in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Number two, Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men, uh, prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be it is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms. Obeyed as God's command in all that it requires. Embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Statement number three. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates... I'm tongue-tangled tonight. Tongue-tangled, even saying tongue-tangled. Both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. Fourth statement, being holy and and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. 
No less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Statement number five. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. I hope you will go on and read their exposition and their affirmations and denials, what they were saying and what they were not saying, I hope you will read uh, about their entire uh, statement. It's not that long of a read. It's, it's worthy of, uh, of your, your attention. Well, in, uh, in, in talking about Revelation, general and special, obviously special. we're looking tonight at special revelation being God's written word. We will also talk about uh, Revelation when we talk about God's living word, the Lord Jesus, when we talk about the person and work of Jesus Christ. But tonight in particular, next week, we're talking about his written word. Now, the doctrine of inspiration naturally results in the doctrine of what? The doctrine of inspiration naturally results in the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inspiration naturally results in the doctrine of inerrancy. It is precisely because we believe the Bible is is God-breathed that we also believe that the scripture is inerrant or without error in the original manuscripts. Let me give you a working definition of inerrancy that that again I'm going to send you home with a copy of tonight. A working definition. The inerrancy of scripture means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. It does not affirm anything that is false or contrary to fact. Now, the definition in its simplest form means what? God always tells the truth. On any matter that God reports... God always tells the truth. He can do no other because he's a God of truth. Now, as he indicated on the, on the video tonight, some have tried to say that inerrancy only refers to matters of faith and practice. That as you're reading your Bible... And you come to a passage on salvation or the Christian life. The Bible can be trusted. But if it's making any other kind of statement, maybe about a king who served, anything else, then the Bible cannot be trusted. 
Is that the doctrine of inerrancy? No. Inerrancy extends to and includes the Bible's words about everything, including science and history. Now, is the Bible a science textbook? No. Is it a history textbook? No. But when it comments on those matters, it can be trusted. Folks, if the Bible could not be trusted when addressing historical matters, then what kind of assurance could you and I have that it could be trusted when it's addressing issues of salvation? Now, let me say that the Bible can be inerrant, can be viewed as being inerrant and still speak in ordinary terms or in round numbers without threatening inerrancy. What do we call that? What kind of language is that? To Phenomenological. Phenomenological language. And again, don't worry. I'm going to send you home with... You must have had this from a previous class we had or whatever. The, the copy of it. Um, phenomenological language. Let me give you an example of that. The Bible can speak of the sun rising and not be in error. Right? Exactly. Technically, we know what? Sun doesn't rise. Rather, the earth rotates on its axis, revolves around the sun. But we all the time use language like the sun rose at 6.54 a.m. today. And we understand when we talk like that, we're not giving false information. We're not giving misleading information. And so we need to extend the same courtesy to the scripture. That's how we talk. I like what, I like what uh, Baptist theologian A.H. Strong once said. He said, would it be preferable in the Old Testament if we should read, when the revolution of the earth upon its axis caused the rays of the solar luminary to impinge horizontally upon the retina, Isaac went out to meditate. Would you, want, would you want it to read that way? Of course not. Such pedantic language would, uh, would not be preferable at all. In fact, we'd say it's absurd. Nobody speaks that way. The same courtesy needs to be extended to the Scripture. If I say I live two and a half miles away from home, but technically I live... Uh, 2.500001 miles away. Have I been dishonest with you? No. Would you want me to say I live 2.500001 miles away? No. 
Folks, it, it is illogical. It, it's absurd to assume that the Bible contains errors because the human authors reported things in phenomenological language. Now, let me also say, Scripture cannot rightly be understood unless we take into consideration that it has a dual-sided authorship. It's, it's not enough to, to affirm that the Bible is a human witness to divine revelation because the Bible is also God's witness to himself. Dual-sided authorship. We must affirm that the Bible is entirely the Word of God and the, wor- and the words of human authors. God used the words of human authors. It's the words of God written in the words of men. What's 2 Timothy 3.16 say? Somebody read 2 Timothy 3.16. Second Timothy three sixteen. That's fine. All scripture is God breathed, the breath of God. And and folks, the uh, the Greek words are significant there. It, it's not all inspired scripture that's not what it's saying all inspired scripture as though there is some scripture that is inspired and some that is not he says all scripture all scripture is inspired what does uh, Peter say in 2nd Peter chapter 1 verses 19 to 21 That men wrote as they were what? As they were inspired, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The same word is used in the book of Acts in speaking of the ship that Paul was on being carried along by the wind. The sailors had to give up trying to control the ship and they simply had to let the wind carry the ship along. It's the same word that's used there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Now there's some some different theories of inspiration. And I'm going to argue that the last one I give is is the proper one. Now there there are places the first one's the proper one. But I'm going to argue the the last one is the, the overall best. The, the first one that's sometimes true is the dictation view. What would the dictation view say? Exactly. Now, are there some cases in the scripture where the dictation view is certainly true? Absolutely. Where God said something directly and told the human author to write that. 
can you think of uh, can you think of a specific, uh, like I say, numerous examples, but a, but a rather evident example in the Old Testament, early on in the Old Testament history? Can you think of an example? When God wrote on the tablets, right? Well, God actually, the Bible says He wrote on the with the finger of God on those tablets. But certainly it was, it was God directly giving that word. Uh, a second view is the illumination view. The illumination view. Now, this view simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them in such a way that their religious insight was elevated. Their religious insight was elevated. Then there's the encounter view. Does anybody know if if you've read much about Karl Barth, you probably know what I'm going to get at here, the encounter view. Again, it's it's an inadequate view of Scripture. It's more neo-Orthodox theology like Karl Barth was. The encounter view. Any guess? No? The encounter view says... Inherently, inherently, there's nothing really more special about the Bible than any other book. Except that the Holy Spirit, when you take up the Bible and read it, the Holy Spirit uh, can, can use the Bible in a unique way. When the reader reads it... The Holy Spirit causes a particular passage to speak to the heart of the reader. And in that moment, in that moment, the Bible becomes the Word of God to the reader. I I hope you can see the weakness in that. Then there's the dynamic view. This was in large part a reaction to the dictation view. This view held that the Holy Spirit inspired the concepts and the thoughts of the writer, but basically left the fleshing out of the words to the individual authors. But then I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you what I think is is the over the Unfortunately, what the evangelical community has adopted, the the best view would be the verbal plenary view. And there's two aspects to the verbal plenary view. What would that be? Think about those two words, verbal, plenary. Come on, class. We've been over this before. Some of you know this, don't you? Okay. The, ver- the verbal aspect of, of, of the 
verbal plenary view means every word was inspired. Not just the thoughts, not just the flow of a book or the flow of a passage or the big picture, but the very words. And folks, this is why we consider it important to do things in our preaching and teaching like doing word studies. Because words matter. You do a word study. Why did the Holy Spirit want this word used versus this word? And, and we even talk about the significance of tenses being used, right? The significance of something, for instance, being in the present tense. In that particular instance, yes. Uh, I think I mentioned a place last week where the NIV, probably the stronger view on that. But this morning I mentioned how in a particular case the NIV, rather than saying let us fear, it just says let's be careful. Let's be careful. To, and it's kind of weak. So uh, the, the, the verbal view you know, you're looking at even tenses. And, and is, it, is it an imperative, a command? You know, all that matters. Yeah, if they're in a passage, if there's a, like in uh, John chapter 15. What, what word did Jesus use ten times in John chapter 15? Abide. You think he wanted us to get the concept of abide? I think so. In 11 verses, he uses the word abide 10 times. Ding, 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 ding. He's trying to tell us something, right? Absolutely. Exactly, precisely. Now, fortunately for even the layman in the church today, the, the tools that are out there on the market are wonderful. Even if you don't know the biblical languages, we're blessed with, with great tools today. Sure. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. And now what's plenary mean? The whole. The entirety of it. Exactly. The verbal plenary. All of the Bible. Hmm? So I, I believe the, plenary, uh, the verbal plenary view... Uh, of the of the inspiration of the Bible, I, I think that's 
the overall best view out of these. Again, like I say, the first one, dictation, there are places in the Bible, obviously it was dictation. But I think the overall one that best describes uh, the inspiration of the Bible would be the verbal plenary. And, And again, this just views... The sovereignty of God extending to, to the whole process. He Think about it. He chose biblical writers knowing full well their education, their vocabulary, their background, their personality, their style, so forth and so on. And he superintended the entire process of their writing even down to the words that they used, but without asserting dictation. And also preserving and using the individual writer's personality and experiences. How important is it to the church to uh, to have the doctrine of inerrancy? How? How or why? Why is is it important that we have confidence in the inerrancy of the Scripture? Okay. Okay. Sure. Our, our faith, based upon God being a truthful, not only is God truthful, but a truthful, sovereign God is capable of giving us a truthful word. What would we be saying about God if we said, you know what, I just don't think He's able to give us a trustworthy word. Poor God. Poor God. Isn't that basically what we'd be saying? Sure. You what? Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting, uh, time and again, the archaeologists, you know, some, some scholar thinks, oh, he's found something in the Bible that proves, this right here proves the Bible can't be trusted. And then something is discovered in archaeology, maybe some cylinder uh, with historical data on it, Man, other manuscripts or something that all along shows us that what the Bible was saying all along was trustworthy. Josh McDowell? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, he's he, the, the more than the carpenter. And then he has the 
the evidence that, that demands a verdict, and now he's got the, you know, the more evidence that demands a verdict. And he talks about in the, in the evidence and more evidence some of those things that have been discovered through the ages. That See, the Bible, the Bible was true all along. It is amazing how some of those discoveries have been made that have shown that the Bible was spoke the truth all along. Yeah, sure. Well, again, that shows that, that belief is not simply a matter of the head, but of the heart. Because these, these people, they have all the evidence. Uh, I, I mentioned, was it Wednesday night, two weeks ago, I mentioned that I wish I could remember now, a create, uh, uh, an evolutionist who said, we know the data and the evidence is on the side of the creationist. But we're not willing to accept that because to accept that evidence would mean that we would have to embrace a creator and we're simply unwilling to do that. Well, folks, the longest part of my lecture tonight was the canon of the Old Testament, canon of the New Testament. That's my longest part of tonight. And I was supposed to be done a minute ago. So I want you to come get a, uh, a handout before you leave tonight. I, I didn't want to give it to you ahead of time because you'd just sit there and read it. And wouldn't listen to me at all. You'd just bury your head in it. I've got, uh, I have like 58 of these here. Uh, we may have, I'm, I'm guessing we probably have about 65. So if, uh, if married couples, if you would maybe, a few of you, if you would just take one, okay? And you can share. So, anyway, uh, let me get David and Rick to pass those out, and we will, we will cover issues of the canon next week, the Old Testament canon and New Testament canon, okay?